Chris Daybrier. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Today's a very exciting day. There's a new book coming out and the author is here. David Marquez here. David, thank you for taking time out of your day. Thank you. And, and just by the way, I kind of feel like I can lay claim to being the original Reluctant Agilist. Well, <laughs> all right. I don't think I can fight that, especially yeah. given the work that you've done. But um, so, so David is the author of Turn the Ship Around, um, and that's a book that came out in 2013. And for people like me, that book had a huge impact on the way that I think about trying to work with others to, to, to achieve a certain kind of outcome. So David, how do you describe that approach to leadership and to getting work done? The, the approach is this. We have grown up, I grew up, I was trained that, that there's this dichotomy at work. There's the thinkers and then the doers. There's the leaders, the followers. We have common language to encode that. Uh, white collar, blue collar, college, college educated, not college educated, white hard hats, blue hard hats. We have uh, clothing that we wear and symbols that, that build this in. And uh, so I came up through the Navy as, an, as a submarine commander. And the problem hit me smack in the forehead when I got shifted to a submarine that I wasn't trained up for. I wanted to be that uh, knowing, telling leader, be smart, have all the answers, guide, and guide my team with precise and inspirational orders. I didn't really know the details of the ship, and I had to figure out how to, way to not give orders. The problem wasn't giving better orders. The challenge was how to figure out not to give orders. And we did it with uh, twisting the language around re-engineering the language. And it was so powerful. And that's how it all started. So I started questioning everything. And I realized all my leadership training was fundamentally at the core of it about getting people to do stuff. It's, it's called coercion. That's the best word for it. We, we don't like the words. We, you know, mask it. We call it inspiration or motivation. Motivate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nonsense like that. But fundamentally, anything where you're going to try and get someone else to do something that you decided they needed to do, it's going to be coercive. So what happens is we, we ended up in a situation where we tried as much as possible to let the people doing the work make decisions about the work, let the doers be the deciders. And it's upended this whole idea of there's a caste system. And I called it a leader-leader organization, not a leader-follower organization, uh, but a leader-leader organization. And once you kind of make that uh, mental switch, basically everything that you're doing encodes this leader-follower. For example, we would have these big checklists that we would keep tasks that we would keep for the people below us. And then I would meet with the engineer and the department has once a week and I go over this long, Hey, how are you doing on this? What's going on with that? And this poached ownership, this was really demeaning, but we all did it because that's what leadership was. It was managing other people. And we just, I just threw it out. I said, you know what? This thing is, you guys know your job. You do it. You push to me, you lean into me, you lean up. Tell so they, could they still have their own checklist? Because yeah, so I'm assuming little, it's not you, like you saying we don't need any checklists at no, all, no, no, but we no, don't need no. you imposing one. Yeah, no, no, no. You could keep task lists for yourself and you could keep them for your boss. Okay. But I wasn't going to invest organizational time in maintaining these lists for subordinates. Okay. And 
it was super scary because I was like, well, what happens if stuff doesn't get done? Now, here's the here's what happens. The, the important stuff, everyone, first of all, they know what to do and it gets done. And if it's really important, something will remind you or the organization that it needs to get done. But here's the thing. If you're, let's say you're in the middle of some organization and you know there's no one above you going to come down and say, well, what are you doing with this today? How about that? It's on you. You own your job at that point. And there's a sense of freedom and responsibility and, and ownership that can't be papered over in the old way where I actually own your job. And then I try and pretend that you own your job through some bogus empowerment program. So the result was thinking, thinking at all levels of the organization. So we went from just doing, some, some people thinking and some people doing, to everybody thinking. Now, you can't think all the time because doing is a big part of the job. You have to load torpedoes and start to react. Can I, ask, can I ask a question about this part? Yeah. For you as a leader, I mean, in the first book, I felt like that, and maybe I'm, I'm kind of wrong with this, but I felt like that was a lot about explaining to leaders a different way to think about their job, a different way to frame their job. And when you're talking about, you know, trusting the other people to do the work, which makes total sense, especially in the scenario that you were in, didn't you feel like it was kind of like free fall? I mean, if you were brought up in a thing where there was always going to be somebody stepping on your neck, making sure you did it right. And now you're like, yeah, I trust you. I mean, that's got to be a little terrifying. Yeah, let me, but, but let me explain. It's not trust and close my eyes. Okay. Trust and, and wish. It's, tr it's trust in the sense that they would say, here's my intent. Here's what I'm going to do this watch the next six hours. Here's what I'm going to do this week. Here's my plan for starting the reactor next week. Here's my plan for getting the ship ready for deployment over the next two months. There was this, it, there was this um, robust communication upward people sh exposing their thinking and their planning ahead of okay. time so that we can then say, Oh, well, let's, let's look at that. And, and, and it went from as something as like, you're on the ship, you're at sea. And, and in the past it there was this sort of formalistic professional sounding thing, which would have played well in the movies where the officer would say, uh, helm, that's this, this person steering, this steering the ship helm left 10 degrees right or yeah. steady course 270. But it would come out of the blue. And now we would the officer would say, Hey, I'm thinking about turning left. What do you guys think? And the and the diving officer said, Well, that's gonna put the stern through the seas. I'm gonna need to change the trim of the submarine a little bit. Give me three minutes, blah, blah, blah. And um there, so all these little nuanced conversations were happening, which built teamwork as opposed to this sort of uh blunt cascading down. Okay. And then when the team was ready, then the officer would invoke the formal order and it would sound formal. But wrapped around that, there was these was this chatter. Okay. Chatter is good. And that seems like a really good segue into the red-blue work yeah. conversation. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, so the bottom line was my mom bought my first book and then a few more people, a few more people. And pretty soon I was like, whoa, I, I'm getting invited. I'm helping organizations all around the world. And they were like, well, how do we mimic what you did? And I said, for us, it's always about language. It's 
Uh, we try and change your mindset by changing your language first. So, uh, for example, uh, we'd listen, we'd walk down the hallway and I'd say, who are these people? Or we're, we're this, who are these people? We're this, who are these? They're the marketing team. So as right. soon as I, went, I heard it shift from we to they, I called that the we, they boundary. And I said, well, can we expand the we, they boundary? Can we include marketing inside a we? Well, I don't know. Well, let's just practice that. And, uh, and then six months later, it, marketing felt like we, and marketing would refer to us as, as we, we. Say we were an ops, as we. Okay. It, it, and I saw this, and I was like, this is amazing. And so I had all these little phrases. Another one is you want people to think probabilistically about the future, at least I think you do. And there's two reasons for this. One is because the future is probabilistic. It's not certain. Right. And two is it makes it easier for your team to send you a signal. So, for example, what I saw often was, will it work? Is it safe? Are you going to launch the product next Wednesday? Will there be any bugs? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, of course, there's going to be bugs, but people would sort of think that that was the wrong answer. They were like, well, no. Anyway, it's idiotic. So we said, like, how likely – you know, how safe is that? How sure are you? That kind of thing. Um, so the idea behind the new book is, well, here's all this. Don't say this, say that. But it needs to be organized. Otherwise, people can't remember it. And this red word, blue word is the organizational theme. And it works like this. When you go through your work day, when you go through your life, you do two different things with your brain. Thing one is what we call red word. This is focused. This is, you're in the work. Sometimes it's physical, simple physical tasks, but it requires focus. You're coding, you're, you're active, you're on the phone, you're talking to a client, it's right. focused. But then there's blue work. Blue work is decision work. Blue work is diffuse, broad, reflective, and typically quieter. You may okay. be having a meeting, you may be doing some brainstorming, you may be, but now you're casting a wide net. And the key is, Blue work is about embracing variability. Red work is about embracing focus, which means reducing variability. Focus, by definition, reduces it reduces the distractions of outliers. So driving so, a car versus deciding which way to go. Correct. Exactly. At the end of the workday, let's say you got a decision. Go to the gym, go to the club, go home. Once you make that decision, now you're in red work. You're just driving. You're sort of an auto. You yeah. might not even remember the details of the drive when you get there. And you don't revisit it at every stoplight. Okay, now I'm going to go home or I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah. You're, you're, you're in execution mode. And, and, and since the relationship to variability is different, the language needs to be different. Now, here's the deal. In the Industrial Revolution, we separated this work by class. We had the thinkers and the doers, the right. blue workers and the red workers. Now... We want everyone thinking. So the problem isn't red work and blue work. The problem is when you assign a class to be a permanent red working class, i.e. the doers, and a permanent blue working class. So what you need is the whole organization to be flipping from red to blue. The reality is you're in red most of the time. You're in the project. So let's say you have a project. We're going to build a new piece of software, nominal scope, two years, $10 million. Okay. And... Well, how do we set it up? Well, initially, we might do short periods of red work, two weeks, 
and then a pause for blue work, thinking, reflecting, are we on track, adjust course. This should be reminiscent of how Agile works, because it, yeah. it I was, it was, I was uh, influenced by it. As the project goes on now, the decision space gets optioned out. And the, the bias early is short periods of red work with a completion and then blue work. But at toward the end, longer periods of red work, now you shift to four weeks, six weeks, maybe you're even two, in two months, eight week um, sprint, if you want to use that language, because the, all the key decisions have been made, what's going to look like and that kind of thing. And now we're letting the team get, get it done and we get the sense of completion, right. galloping towards the home stretch and we bias towards production near the end. But when you have the language of red work and blue work, it doesn't matter whether you call it agile or not. You can label to the team what you're doing. And I think it's beneficial to respect the red work and say, okay, we're in red work. Don't, we're not going to change course in the middle of this next two weeks. Yeah. Just do it. But, but, but no, we're going to pop our heads up and we're going to reflect and make a decision about where to go next. So can uh, I can I check in with yeah. you on this? I just yeah, yeah. want to walk through a sprint from Scrum and make sure that I have this because I think I have it kind of sorted. So sprint well, planning. <laughs> well, sprint planning is the first thing we do in the sprint, and that's where the team is figuring out what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. So that's going to be uh, red, blue. That's, blue. Sorry, that's, blue. Okay, so that's yeah, blue. It's and thinking then, work. Look, look. The question is, does it benefit from variability? Yes. So, yeah, it does, because we want more ideas. More ideas means greater variability and um, dissenting and diverse opinions. So it's blue work. Okay. And then the then, same thing is going to occur in the daily scrum when they're asking the question, what and how can we do work today? Yeah, to it's recursive. So there's yep. small, small dots of blue work there. Okay. And then when we, the one I have a question about is – at the end of the sprint, the team's going to bring finished work to the stakeholders and present it to them to have a conversation about, is this stuff right? Do you want it to be different? I'm assuming that that's still exploring variability, but I wanted to check in on that one. Now you're back in blue work. The way I describe it is blue work is let's, let's collaborate on what we're going to do. Then we make a commitment. Once the commitment is made, now we flip a switch and now we're off doing our things. Yeah. Okay. So now, all you know, the, the the problem is with some organizations, if you don't pre-plan the next pause, which is one of the genius things of agile, yeah. Knowing that we're gonna stop in two weeks allows me to be super focused on the work. It, if we just started something and said, Yeah, for the next for infinity, we're gonna work on this, you'd always be reserving a small amount of your mental uh, um uh, resources to play that question. Well, are we really doing the right thing? And you could really never get fully into the work. Or if you did, you'd risk doing something brilliantly that was irrelevant. Yeah. So knowing that we're going to pause allows the team to go fully into the work. And then we say, okay, time up. We blow the whistle or whatever. Everyone raises their head up. We look left, we look right. We invite other people into the room. We celebrate. And then, uh, so, so the plays, I call these plays. So yeah. for me, we complete and celebrate, and then we reflect and improve 
on what we've done, and then we collaborate and make another commitment and go back into the red work. So you're really specific about calling out that, you know, we're, we have this planned break that we're going to take, or, or even things like the dissent cards. We know we've got some person whose job it is going to be to be devil's advocate here. Um, yes. Can you comment on, like, from somebody coming from, from the background that you have, like, creating that space where we all know that this is a designated thing that we would normally just bail on and not do because we're too busy working. Does that yeah. give you like the freedom, like a little bit of comfort or safety and ease with letting that thing be there and knowing you can trust it? Yes. When we know a pause is coming up in two weeks, it allows good behavior on both sides. The team can focus on the work. They don't have to reserve cognitive resources to question the work. And the leader doesn't interfere with the team because the leader says, well, in two weeks, I'll have an opportunity to share my brilliant new ideas with the team. <laughs> but in the meantime, I'm just going to keep them in my notebook or in a backlog. Yeah. And then we'll expose them all at the same time. And, and it inoculates me against the temptation to whipsaw the team around. Now, okay. in the absence of that, so if you, and, and I, I think sometimes agilists over-formalize it. Okay. Uh, I can give you just simple examples from our own work where I felt like this framework really helped out. I just have a simple meeting, uh, let's say, with the person doing our advertising. And they'd say, hey, we're, I'm going to start an ad campaign on LinkedIn. I go, okay, fine. Uh, let me know how it goes. Now, the problem with that is I haven't created an endpoint. I haven't defined when the exit from web work is going to be. So they're going to go out and do red work. Yeah. They're going to run an ad campaign. They're going to assign dollars to it. They're going to create some assets, blah, blah, blah. But when I said, okay, fine, let me know how it goes, there's no defined endpoint. So he said, okay, fine, let's have a meeting in a month so you can show everyone what you've learned. Now there's a defined endpoint. And it's as simple as that. But but I just found over and over and over again because I wasn't doing that. And I said, well, when are you going to come back to me? Well, you didn't tell me. Well, you know, well, what about this? And I get some new idea and, and it's just chaos. Yeah. The, it, continuous improvement is a misnomer. It's incremental improvement. Continuous improvement would imply that you're changing it every iteration, which you don't want. So for example, we're also, we're building a um, frontline leader course with a Fortune 100 company. And the first three times we gave a course, we got together with the facilitators. It's a train-the-trainer thing. So we're training yeah. their trainers, their delivery. And we said how to go. And we took feedback. And we made adjustments to the slide deck and the agenda. But you don't want to do that forever. So we said, you know what? We, we've kind of tweaked it in. We got the big chunks in play. Yeah. Let's now do five courses. We're not going to change anything because now – you don't want to whipsaw because of one course, it just might have been a particularly good or bad day for somebody. And, you know, now you're changing. This is called interfering with the process. Let the process run, and then we'll have a meeting, and then we're going to do 15 of them, and then we're going to do the whole rest of the year. So you can see how we're yeah. more pauses early, fewer pauses. Bigger loops. Later. Yeah. Bigger yeah. loops, less variability. Correct. Well, you – I'm really curious about how you got so into language. I mean, that there's so many subtle things <laughs> in this book that like, I'm like, oh crap, I say that all the time and it never occurred yeah. to me that that's not 
effective. Uh, right. Even like the Shane Mack example, should I come down there? You know, like to say on a scale of one to 10. Right. Um, like that's just, I don't know. How, how did you get so honed in on that? Well, because it's natural. When you're a submarine commander, so let's say you're about to launch a torpedo. There's a whole bunch of ships out there. You're trying to get the enemy ship. Now, of course, the enemy is trying to mask themselves and look like a peacetime ship. Right. And at the last minute, someone on your team has a nagging feeling that it might not be the right ship. Now, it doesn't even need to be a nagging feeling. It's the wrong ship. Just a nagging because you're going to shoot them and kill people. Yeah. Right? So, so first thing is that person has to have a vehicle by which they speak up. But let's say things are going well. They, they raise their hand and say, hey, Captain, I'm not 100% sure this is the right ship. Now, I could say, don't shoot to the weapons officer. But let's say someone sneezes or there's a clang right at the dump. Now all they hear is shoot. Yeah. Shoot, I, it's gone. And you just, Killed you know, you're people. on your path to killing the wrong people. Yeah. We had a perfect example of this. There's a Delta 777 took off of LAX a couple of weeks ago, heading for Shanghai, fully loaded with fuel. Uh, shortly after takeoff, the pilots called an emergency return to LA to land. The air traffic controller says to them, don't you have to dump or hold fuel or anything like that? And the pilots come back, uh, negative. This is almost this is almost exactly, I don't have it in front of me, but I just read right. it. This is almost exactly what they said. And then they dumped fuel over the schools and, you, and everybody knows what happened then. But um, that's really bad language. First of all, it's don't. Don't you have to hold or dump fuel or anything like that? So when the pilot says negative, does he mean negative, I don't need to hold fuel? Negative, I don't need to dump fuel? Negative, I don't need to do anything? Like, it's very ambiguous. Just so, imprecise. Yeah, we would spend hours looking at the words. And, and so, so it comes natural, is as, as what I'm trying to say, is this to focus on the words and the language. Yeah. And, and but, I always felt... Like, why did I say that? I didn't say it like that. That wasn't helpful. I felt like I was programmed. And so I, I was always in the mode of re-engineering re the language and reprogramming myself. So the story was Shane Mack. So Shane Mack, for you guys, is a, like a 3X entrepreneur, uh, sold his uh, first and second companies, had, was in his third startup. And I was working with him. And they were doing a software thing at Philadelphia Stadium. We were a couple miles away having lunch. We get a phone call. It's not going well. And the interface is, is acting up. And the other company is starting to blame. The other everyone's starting to point fingers at each other. And there are about 50 executives from Apple there to watch this thing happen. And it was getting into a uh, – anyway. It was, so Shane's on the phone with the project manager. And, and uh, he says uh, – well, you'll let me know if I have to come over, if, if you want me to come over. And he says, uh, uh, okay. And then he hangs up. Obviously, the person said, no, you don't need to. Because basically, when you're asking that question, you're saying, how bad do you suck at your job? <laughs> right? right? How bad do you need me? And, and so it, it invites people to 
want to demonstrate competence. So they say, no, 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 I don't want to bother the CEO. You don't need to come. Uh, anyway, I had an idea. I said, Shane, why don't you call him back and say, how helpful would it be if I were there one to five? And he calls back. And you know the answer? Five. Yeah. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. And so, 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 so we obviously leave the restaurant. We go over there. Anyway, it's a long story short, but everything worked out. And it's just like one in one universe, you ask a question one way and we sit there having lunch and who knows what would happen. And in a slightly different universe, you ask a question just a slightly bit different and there's a different outcome. We head over and the CEO's there and there's a good outcome. But see, this is one I would never catch because I would have said to my my people, like, look, you need me. I'm here. Like, I'll come. I got I got nothing else to do that is more important right. than this. All you got to do is say the word. And right. I would feel like that was an invitation to them to say, hey, you know what? We could use your help. But yeah. that doesn't yes, create the same awareness as that one to five thing. That's right. But But think about it. It just makes it slightly easier for your people to tell you what's really going on. When you ask it that way, what you're putting them in the position of is saying, of telling you, the boss, what to do and admitting fallibility. Now, yeah, in a healthy environment, these are all easy things and everyone, everyone does that. And it's not a problem. Say, hey, boss, I need you. Get over here. Yeah. But on the bias, if you just drew a bell curve of humanity, I think when you ask it that way, you're going to get fewer people saying, hey, boss, I need you to come over here. Versus if you ask an informational question okay. and, it, and it's not like, would it be helpful? This is the other, here's the other key. You don't say, would it be helpful if I were there? Well, um, yeah, yeah, sort of, maybe a little bit. Like, is that a yes or a no? So you ask, how helpful would it be? Okay. You give them a score, scale, one to five. Now that's gotta be hard to catch yourself. I mean, do you find that you still have to like monitor yourself pretty tightly when you're talking? Yeah, but my whole team has read this, so they always call me. They're out. always calling you out on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so if somebody picks up this book, they're going to learn about the difference between red and blue. They're going to learn to be more vigilant about their language and think of find different ways to to talk with the people around them. What is like the outcome that you're looking for with this book? You're going to make better decisions. Your team's going to make better decisions, and. You're gonna be more. You're gonna be more aligned in your life to what you're really trying to trying to do. Okay. I think this book works works at three levels. Number one, at the tactical level, it's it's these phrases which I think are just more helpful in allowing people to share what they think and see, especially if it happens to be a diverse or divergent opinion. Yeah. Number two, it's a playbook of this, the structure of the six plays that we inherited from the Industrial Revolution and the plays you want now. And then number three, it's framed within this architecture of red-blue, red work, blue work, and you'll see it playing out in your life. So we, you talked before about during the sprint, hey, at, at the two-week cycle, there's a sprint planning meeting, that's blue, then we do the sprint, that's red, and then there's a... Um, yeah. There's a Daily Scrum, the Sprint Review, and the Sprint Retrospective, right. they would all be blue. Within that, there's a, day, there's a, there's a stand-up, which is a, a small bit of blue work in the middle of the red. Right. But at the higher level, I think our lives, our, our lives have been structured in the following. Blue, red, forever. Yeah. In other words, you're going to go to school, 
high school, then let's say you go to college, and you graduate at 21 or 22, you're now your blue work is over, your period of learning, your period of curiosity, and now you're going to go do. You're going to do your profession. And you're going to do that forever. That sounds very sad. <laughs> it, it is sad because we're living longer. Yeah, but you're not learning. But, right. So, so there's a key, there was a key crossover point in the old days, whenever that was, the, the career, the changes in any kind of any career happen slower than your working life. So your working life might be 30 years. Right. And if you were a cobbler, the technology behind making shoes didn't change enough in 30 years to warrant you having to go back to school. Right. Then at some point recently, that, that relationship reversed. So now our working lives are longer, 40, 50 years. Yeah. And the changes are happening faster. So now if you're a cobbler or a bricklayer or a coder or a doctor or a pilot or anything, yeah, there's changes happening. So we need blue in our work. And not only oh, I'm going to be a pilot. I got to keep going back to school, be refreshed. And there's a sense of, of that. Yeah. Bill Gates pausing and doing his one week think weeks. This is blue work. Uh, but I encourage people to think about it. Hey, I've been an engineer for 20 years. Maybe I, I need to pause, do some re Yeah, get excited and, and learn some stuff. Yeah, and decide, well, you know, I want to be a lawyer now or who knows what. So now do you, I'm, I'm imagining like, even in things like marriage, this would be something you'd want to be doing. You know, you're doing stuff, you stop it. Is this going, what do we need to change? Are we doing yeah. it? Okay. How are we communicating? Yeah. This yeah. Is that, cool. that would be interesting. We'll write, that'd be my next book. A workbook for <laughs> turn your marriage around. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, it, the, the play, the play is called improve. What we used to do was run the prove play and, uh, in my and the way I sense it, yeah. and I, I call them. There's two different selves. I have two different personas inside of me. One one I call the be good self. The be good self wants to protect the image in the world of credibility, competence, uh, value, worth. Okay. Uh, but the be good self is defensive and doesn't react well to criticism. Okay. Because that attacks the people, vulnerable. All, all those, all those things. Yeah. The get better self is the seeking, curious. In ten years from now, I'm, I'm going to be better at what I'm doing than I am today. Self and the and the get better self seeks and thrives on feedback. Okay. But the problem is, we need to feel safe enough in order to have the vulnerability of the get better self. Yeah. And it's not the same for everybody. Some people are very good at it. But on the whole, in organizations, if you want your people to evaluate their own work, this is the big change. In the old days, I didn't care about it. I didn't care about the emotional health of people in the industrial age because I wasn't asking them to make decisions. And I didn't say, oh, hey, reflect upon how the line's been running for the last 30, 30 days. What do you think we should do? Yeah. Well, by the way, it was you, you that you're going to you're going to reflect and criticize your own work. Right. No, I, I didn't ask people. To, I had people standing behind them on clipboards. That was my job as a manager. Yeah. So 
now with Agile and this red-blue structure, we're going to say, pause, oh, how's it going? So now we need healthy emotions to make healthy decisions and to tame the be good self in order to allow the get better self to then be dominant during that retrospective. Which is going to be hard, especially if you're trying to get a whole team to do it at once. Correct, because there's a social thing. We have, people say, well, everyone did their best. John really tried hard. Yeah. He totally screwed it up, but you know, he tried. <laughs> like, why, do we say, why do we have to say that? There's these social norms. Yeah. That's because I got to feed the be good self. Like, well, we, had, we did the best we, we could with the resources we had. Everyone tried their best. This is, let's just get into it. So I want to offer a challenge to people who listen to this and read the book. I, and I'm curious to hear feedback from anybody. This, there's so many subtle language things in this book that I feel like I need to get one of those rubber bands to snap on my wrist every yeah. time I say something wrong. Um, just if, when you read it, try to pay attention to things that he calls out and notice how often you say these things and how, much, how many opportunities you have to find better ways to get more information from the people you're working with and to let them be, to me, more of it. Um, I wanted to try to close out with something very tactical. And there's something in the book that you have that I was like, oh my God, this is going <laughs> to fix half my life. <laughs> all about, because I teach all the time and I'm always like, I'd like you to come back. You know, we're going to start again at one o'clock and like <laughs> 10 minutes after. You have a very simple answer to this problem. And I'm wondering if you could tell the story. Yeah. So uh, I was doing a workshop and I got to the first break. And I said, all right, be back at 10 o'clock. And a guy came up to me and he said, well, you're a big fat hypocrite. And of course I was a little taken aback, but then I invoked my get better self. And I was proud of myself. I said, oh, uh, tell me about that. <laughs> the guy said, well, you just gave us a whole talk about how you shouldn't give instructions, give information and let people understand the consequences of their behavior. And then you just told us what to do. Be back at 10 o'clock. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're right. So, so at first I said, well, what else would you say? But then I started thinking about it. I said, well, I said, I will start at 10 o'clock. And then they have a choice. And then you have a, a choice. Very, very yeah, you're an adult. Way of letting them know. Yeah, right. If your um, dad has a heart attack and you want to leave, yeah. <laughs> I was like, should, no, yeah. no, you have to be here. Like that, that makes no sense. So. So I have a lot of fun with this at conferences, by the way. The guy before me says, everyone put away their cell phones, blah, blah, blah. Like, you're top telling people what to do. And I say, hey, take, if you want your cell phone out, fine, have it. If you, want, if you want to do email, fine. I don't care. I already got paid. And, uh, and, <laughs> and if you want to learn you get, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're bored, do your email. If you're really bored, stand up and do your email. <laughs> And if everyone's standing up, then I'll know. Uh, That's I'll feedback. That's feedback for you. Yeah, yeah you would pay for that. <laughs> so, but, so the, the, uh, the phrase is give information, not instructions. I saw an awesome example of this in an elevator at Hilton uh, last week. It said, roughhousing in the elevator may activate a safety feature, which will lock the elevator in place with the door shut and you'll be locked in until uh, maintenance can come around and investigate the problem. It was, wow. all, it was perfect because 
It didn't say don't roughhouse in the <laughs> elevator. It just said you may be stuck in the elevator for a few hours if you do that. And here's the other thing. The person who suffers the consequences of your behavior is you. This is a key part of making a self-correcting, self-responsible organization. If the person who suffers the consequences of your behavior is me, then you've broken the feedback loop. Okay. So uh, give information, not instructions as much as possible. And so walk around your organization, look at the signs, and see if you can change it to say, Instead of saying, don't feed the bears, warning, feeding the bears may result in loss of limbs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But it's your choice. If you want to, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) This is great. Um, Yeah, well, yeah, results in... um, Death. Yeah. (laughs) So I I really appreciate that you wrote this book. I'm very grateful because I'm always trying to learn more about language. Send me your story. Send me a story. Yeah. all I'm you gonna, guys, David at turnshipround.com. Let me know how it goes. Okay, so that's a, that was going to be my next question is contact information. Uh-huh. So David at turntheshiparound.com. Um, that, yeah, that's my um, email. And our website is intentbasedleadership.com or davidmarquet.com. But here's the thing. Uh, the, the easiest thing to do, go on YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel, Leadership Nudges. And every week I put out a little 60-second thing and I say, hey, look at this. And uh, sometimes it's stuff to practice. Like I've got a lot of executives going to dinner and not ordering, seeing, seeing if they can get the server to pick, the, pick their de- Oh, dinner. wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a super good activity because in order to do that, you have to live with the anxiety of not knowing what you're going to get. And you got to make it safe for them to choose. And this thing I, sh- I talked about with the elevator sign, I take that. It's a nudge. It's like a 25-second nudge. So these things aren't long. But they're just little tips and reminders. Okay. They're mostly for myself, to be honest. Well, I'll put links to all this stuff. I kind of want to find that elevator and go test it out. It sounds like an invitation. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So they can pick up the new book, Leadership is Language, on Amazon. And I'm assuming you're going to be traveling around talking about it, right? Yeah, I'm doing – it's coming out in the U.S. and the U.K., so I'm going over there next week. I'll make sure to include uh, links to all the That's upcoming public events um, and the books as well. And thank you very much for taking time out and good luck with the book. Hey, thanks for uh, talking about it. I appreciate it. This was great. All right. Cheers, man. Mm-hmm.